The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Colossians chapter 3 will begin at verse 22, and then we'll read into chapter 4, verse 1. What you're about to hear really is God's word given to you that you might know him, love him, and obey him. So please listen to it as such a gift as it is. The word of God says, bondservants, obey in everything, those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he's done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Well, this is indeed the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Our great God and Father, as we turn our attention and yield our hearts before your word, we pray that your spirit would go forth in power, that these would not be simply words to us, but transforming truths from you. We pray that you would shape each and every one of us in the inner man, that we would not conform simply the outward appearances, but, oh God, that you would change us the core of who and what we are, and that being changed, we would live differently. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive all that you have for us today. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen. Well, if we aren't very careful, brothers and sisters, it is uh, sometimes easy or oftentimes easy for us to live the Christian life as though uh, we could, like, I guess I, I must be hungry, I'm using food analogies already, uh, as though life were kind of like the top of a waffle. Tracking with me so far. And there's all of these little compartments in that, that don't touch the other compartments. I'm a little odd in that I don't like the food on my plate touching. I keep it all in these separate little and if it ever, like, if ever the lasagna touches the salad, both have been defiled. And I don't like that. We sometimes treat our life like that. Like, like there's these compartments, and I've got church in one category, and family in this kind of this other category that is somewhat related to church, and you're off on its own, and then parenting, maybe even one step further from that, because I import into that category all of the ways I was raised, or the way I wasn't raised, or the way that I think my kids should be raised, and then possibly uh, even a step beyond that then is the way that we would engage in our work. And if we aren't careful, we could fail to see how all of these areas of our life are to be transformed by the gospel that we confess and believe in. Every one of those, so really the whole of your life, 
is to be conformed and shaped by the gospel. Now, some ways we get it easier than other ways. I think hopefully, ride with me on this one for a minute. Hopefully you're like, I see how the gospel should change marriage. I'm hoping that's where you're at today, where you're like, I get it. Ephesians 5, it's a picture of Christ in the church. But do we have that similar view or same view with things like work? If we're not careful, we could begin to think of things like work as something out there in the secular world that is of the world and in the world. And if we're not watchful in the way we conduct ourselves, we might, guess what, act as though we weren't new creatures. You are a new creature. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, you are a new creature in Christ. The old has passed away. The new has come. And guess what that means? Even the way you work should be radically transformed by Christ. He is Lord of all your life. Not pieces. Not parts. All of it. And he he is not a sovereign that turns a blind eye to areas in our life that we think, well, does he really rule over? Yeah, he really rules over that one too. And we can sometimes not just view these things as outside the boundaries of kind of his rule and reign, but we can sometimes even view them as, well, necessary evils. You might be thinking, if you met my boss, you would, you would call it that too. Well, that might be. I, I, I hope not. But we could look at work, and maybe we've been in the world too long that we see it the way that the world sees it. The Bible would seek to transform all of us, and we would realize in the very first chapters of the Bible that the very first one to engage in the thing well, what we'll call work, it isn't Adam in the garden. There's actually someone who works before that, if you remember. God is said to work, and God is then said to rest. And then mirroring that same activity, Adam is given the command to work. And if we're careful Bible students, does that uh, command for Adam to work happen before the fall or after the fall? You could answer this. Before the fall, which means that work would have had spoken over it. What phrase? It is good. You might say, yeah, but then the fall got rid of all that. Well, no, it didn't. Did the fall fundamentally change our work? Yeah, it actually did change it, right? The curse given to Adam is that his work would now be marked by toil and sweat, Neither of those are my favorite two words in all the Bible. I have other favorite words, but sweat and toil and thorn are not among them. So now the command to Adam is given to work, yes, before the fall, but continues after the fall. Similarly, like marriage was given before the fall and continues, well, thankfully, after the fall as well. And it continues on throughout all of redemptive history We are to be a people who work. And then that might strike us as a bit of an odd thing to sit and think about. We might think, well, of course I need to work because how else am I going to eat? And I am a fan of eating. 
well, th- that's the wrong way around. You as a Christian are meant to work, be- be- well, because God gave it to you. God calls you to it. He, he actually commands that you be an industrious man or woman and engage in this thing well called work as a gift from God. You might say, all right, you lost me. I fell off the wagon. You just called my work a gift from God and a command of God. Yes, it is. And Paul has this crazy idea that would radically transform our country, but we don't need to delve into that. Uh, Paul says that uh, you, if you're unwilling to work, should not eat. I mean, that's, like, you might say, like, well, are we talking Old Covenant? Well, no, Paul is actually speaking in the New. It is so vital to the life of the, of, well, of the world as well as the church that Paul would say that this is at the core of who and what you are. Now, I am thankful that he put the word willing. If someone is unable to physically work, those are different categories. But those who are able and yet unwilling to work, Paul says that is actually a fundamental moral problem. And that is in the realm or, or, or squarely in the realm of part of the life of a Christian. God gave us work as a gift. God gave us work as a, uh, as a vocation or as a calling. And we are to engage in that in ways that are uniquely Christian, uniquely marked by being part of the new covenant. I don't, it, what, what ought not happen is for a Christian man, we're probably more guilty of this than others, or a Christian woman to be a Christian here on Sundays, go work like a pagan during the week, and then come back here on Sundays. No, you're to be here as a Christian and, and then back at work as a Christian and then back here. Like that's the ebb and the flow of life, working in the world and then on Sundays resting from that work and those two being united one to another. So all of this to lead up to the one big thing I want to try to convince us of today from God's word, you must glorify God in the way that you work. You're working is not outside the things that give him glory. It, they're, they're squarely within them. The way that you work and the work that you do ought to glorify God. I, I would think that it would fall into that same big category where Paul said, whatever you do, now that's a big statement, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. Work falls in that. And Paul turns his attention by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to this topic of work in the midst of this section of Colossians where we've looked at the, the way that the gospel has come into our lives is radically transforming us. And that radical transformation has a direct influence or output on the way that we engage as husband and wife, in the way that we engage as parent and child, and then here as the way, or in the ways that we would engage as what he'll put as uh, slave and master, where I think we could take application from would be uh, employees and employers, and we'll explore the differences there here in a minute. So if you're keeping notes, 
the first way that we want to unpack working to the glory of God would be this, working for God and not for man. Working for God and not for man. If you look at verse 22, you'll notice that Paul addresses, uh, well, a group that he'll call in the ESV bondservants. I am not the happiest person in the world with that translation. It's soft, it's fuzzy, uh, and not entirely accurate. So the word that he uses is slaves. He, he, he addresses slaves, and he's going to uh, con- contrast them with masters. And so when we consider this topic of uh, the New Testament, addressing slavery, a few comments up front might be, well, helpful. Considering the situation that Paul wrote in the first century, there was a vast array of types of slavery at work. There, there were some elements of slavery where if a, a person got in too much debt, would in efforts to pay that debt off, sell themselves into slavery. So you could have doctors or lawyers, or I don't know what a lawyer would do work-wise, but anyway, um, I'm hoping there's no lawyers here will be offended. Um, and they would sell themselves to labor and work to pay that off. I think that would be quite different than, say, a, uh, what we might call a, a prisoner of war situation. Rome goes out, conquers nations, brings back portions of those nations so that they don't have critical mass and fighting capabilities to rebel. And the, the benefit is that they have a workforce here at home and they would be brought in for, for labor and would be at times put over your family, put over massive parts of business. I mean, there, there's a wide variety. Our difficulty is we often think of the word slavery only with the iteration that was here in America, right? Only that which was very racially based uh, which was uh, condemned in the Old Testament as, well, as man-stealing or stealing humans, right? The, the, the scene in the New Testament is very different, although there would have been uh, quite, especially the POW level of slaves would have been uh, not treated super well. This was a massive portion of Roman society. Paul, in this section, is not speaking to a small sliver He's quite possibly talking to a majority of folks that would find themselves in some way, shape, or fashion in a form of slavery. Now, you might say, well, then this would be irrelevant to us. I'm not a slave. Praise the Lord. This doesn't talk to me. Well, I actually think the principles of what he's talking about and the way that we honor God in our work actually directly apply to us as we are here today, either those serving other people in our employment or, or those who are over others and uh, are being worked for. So we want to consider this, while yes, the context might be a bit different, all of the principles, I would say, apply equally well. So if you look at verse 22, he's addressing slaves and those in, in serving capacities. And the command that he gives is that we are to obey in everything. Now, that word obey is one that we've run across before. It was used of children and their parents. Now, the kids might be like, see, told you I'm a slave at the house. Those are not connections you should be drawing. It's just the normal word for obey. 
So as children are to obey their parents, and it's actually the same modifier, in everything, so those serving or working in those capacities are to serve those over them in everything. You might say, well, what does he mean by obey? Well, it would be simply put like this. You ought to do then what they say, how they say to do it, and kids, this is a hard one too, when they say to do it. There's actually quite a few boxes that get checked under the topic obey, right? And so the same would be true here, that those who are in a relationship where they are working for or under someone else, the, the carrying out of that is to do it, well, do the thing they say, do it the way they tell you to do it, and, and do it at the time in which they tell you to get it done. It's not that complex. Something can be simple, which this is, and fail to be easy. Already, I think in your mind, you would have bosses in your past. You're like, that was not easy. Well, it, it's simple, yes, but not easy. And so the command is unabashedly to obey, and the, the scope of it is in everything. Now, does this mean that if your employer commands you to do something that is sinful or illegal, that you could do it and say, hey, I was just told to do it. No, no actually, and we'll get to this at the end of the passage, you serve a much higher master, and you ought to never obey with regards to sin. So if you have an employer that is asking you or demanding that you um, conduct yourself in a manner that is sinful, it is then your duty to not do that thing. You, you, and, and I would say that this in every realm of authority is not to be labeled rebellion. Rebellion means that there's a proper authority at play and that proper authority is being, well, rebelled against. And so if you are being told to sin, they actually do not have the authority to tell you to do that. And therefore, it's not rebellion to obey. It's actually obedience to not obey in that occasion. This would hold true whether it's an employer, whether it's a parent, or whether it's a, well, we'll say it, the government. They, each of those spheres have what we'll call delegated authority, not inherent authority. Your parents have authority because God gave it to them, and he gave it to them on certain topics and areas, and not in all. God does the same with governments, and, and, and it'd be an outflow of work environments as well. You are never to obey with regards to sin. Never. You are to disobey the lesser master and obey the greater one in, in their place. Not rebelliously, not, not wildly, not like, finally, I'm sticking it to it. Like, no. Humbly, Christians have always, when they've had to disobey or civilly disobey, they've always been humble about it, but firm and resolved about it nonetheless. So in uh, barring the, the occasions where you're commanded to do things that are sinful, all of the other things are to be uh, obeyed, uh, well, in the, what they say, when they say it, and how they say to do it. Now there's a lovely nuance with employment that you don't have with slavery. 
which is you can change jobs. It's quite a benefit. So if you're at a place and you, you don't want to do it, you don't have to. You can move jobs. But here's what you can't do. You can't maintain a certain level of employment saying, I will do it, and then guess what you don't do? That thing. I've known Christians who were terrible employees. That should be an oxymoronic thing to say. It should be. I've, I've known Christians who were lazy. They did not do the things that their boss said. Shameful. I mean, genuinely. Christians should have the reputation of being those who obey in everything. Studious, reliable, on time. I, mean, I know you're probably meddling at this point, but that doesn't seem like too far of a reach. Your boss says, be there by 8 when you show up. Not at 8. Earlier. To show industry and responsibility. That's the call of the Bible here. And notice how he, he even sets this in context in the middle of verse 22. This obedience in everything, he uh, uses a phrase in the ESV, the, your earthly masters. The way that he says it in Greek is something like your, your fleshly master. It doesn't mean your boss is overweight, but it could be, I suppose. That's not what he's talking about. He's actually reminding those listening, knowing that sometimes you have someone over you who's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Might not even be a knife, might be a spoon, but that can be tough. And he's reminding you, these are nothing more than earthly masters. Calling into our minds a perspective that would help guard our hearts against grumbling and something else here in a moment. He's also giving an early shot across the bow of earthly masters. Remember, this is all that you are. You are not the greatest thing that's ever walked the earth on two legs. You are a, a earthly, fleshly master. Now... I think one of the applications that we can draw from this, and I, don't, I, I trust I'm not stretching this part of the text too much, because earthly masters are simply that, earthly masters, to be kept in that perspective, they should not be a person whom we allow to ruin our lives. What I mean by that is this. There, there are some Christians who the difficulties that they have with their boss are used to destroy marriages, to destroy families, to wreak havoc in their minds when they're supposed to be here worshiping God at church. Sometimes we give weight to the difficulty that we have at work, way too much weight. And these Bosses, earthly masters, live, if you can pardon the expression, rent-free in our minds so that we take that earthly master everywhere. I take it into the kitchen in my interactions with my wife. I take it into the living room in my interactions with my kids. I take it into the sanctuary with the way that I try to worship God, but I do so so distractedly. Why would we allow an earthly master to have such a, such a powerful negative influence? Rather than just saying, listen, 
heart, mind, they're an earthly master. And at work, I, I work and obey in everything. But I'm not going to allow this to wreck my marriage, which is to reflect Christ in this church. I'm not going to let this eke into the way I parent so that when my kids hear the word father, they think of an angry man. No. They are earthly masters only. And depending on your work situation, you need to really guard your heart that they don't then creep into all the other ways. That's on, that's on you to guard that. Don't blame your earthly master. God will judge him or her for their sin. He will. And he'll say as much in just a few verses. But what won't fly is on the day of days, you saying, well, God, I mean, they... No, there, there won't be any finger pointing by you on the day of days unless you're doing, well, this, right? You are to be responsible in the realms that God has placed you. Don't let earthly master, I, 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 can't, I can't tell you the number of, of occasions where folks have come in with rampant anxiety or depression Wrecked marriages, terrible family life, and one of the primary um, occasions, not causes, of this is they are just allowing the difficulties at work to ruin everything in their life. That is, that is not handling work properly and in a God-fearing, godly fashion. Notice he says that uh, rather that there's kind of two extremes. One would be allowing them to kind of wreck your life. Keep in mind they're only earthly masters. The other is kind of on the other end of that same spectrum, though they might look very differently, not by way of eye service or as people uh, pleasers. The, the sense there, he actually takes the word like slave, which is used already in the verse, and serve, or um, and, and what's the other word he does? It? Yeah, service. Like a slave to the eye. You've worked with this person. When the boss comes by, industrious. I mean, man, they're putting that elbow grease in whatever you're doing. And the boss leaves, they're leaning back on the shovel. I'm mixing and matching metaphors like crazy this afternoon, but that's fine. A person who uh, they, they, they kiss up to the boss. They, the boss comes around and they're like, oh, I am blessed by your presence. And as soon as they leave, they're the first person to badmouth them, but that's neither here nor there. They work selectively, not obediently, not God-fearingly. They work selectively simply to impress the boss. Isn't it frustrating as a Christian worker when you see that person getting promoted and you're not? That's called work in a post-Genesis 3 world. Is that a reality? Mm-hmm. Is it a grievous one? You betcha. Is it one that we are to engage in so that we can climb the ladder faster? No. It's actually decidedly not something that we're to engage in. We're not to be slaves to the eye. Those who would work when the boss is around and then not when they're not around. Or even beyond that, and I think this is just so freeing to have this um, permeate the way we view work. 
as people pleasers. You are not ultimately serving them. The son of your contentment ought not rise or fall based on whether they like you or not. Now that, that can be, there are people who their entire self-worth, sadly, is all wrapped up in their career. And they think they are something or aren't something based on what? Er, er, the opinion of an earthly master? Like th- that's the thing that defines you? Not the fact that you've been forgiven of all your sin. Not the fact that you are one with Christ and indwelt with the Holy Spirit and part of the new creation and the agents breaking into this world. I mean, none of that. What does my boss think of me? On one level, who cares? On another level, should we seek to to do a good job? Yeah, we should seek to do a good job, absolutely. But that doesn't define who you are. That doesn't define, and maybe it's, it's, you're doing, uh, you aren't getting the praise that is well-merited, and that's tough. Or maybe you're really good at your job, and you think that makes you, well, valuable. Both of those are wrong, brothers and sisters. You're not to be eye-servants. You're not to be man-pleasers. Notice how we're actually to engage in in the act of obeying, both these phrases point actually back around to that, that imperative at the front, obey. Well, how should I obey? Not in eye service, not as people pleasers, but how should I do it? With sincerity of heart. The idea of sincerity has to do with like of a, of a simple or undivided heart. Uh, some have said, I didn't have a chance to chase it down and see if it's true. So if you're like, that's not true. I'm like, all right, it's a good analogy anyway. Who cares? I've heard that there are some way back in the day where they would put above their shop the term sincere or Latin version of it, meaning that this was a shop that did not engage in hiding flaws and cracks in the things that they were selling, that what you saw was what you got. There'd be some who would take, especially with ceramics, if there was a, a crack in the vessel that they were trying to sell, they could fill it with wax and you wouldn't be able to see it. It presented itself as being whole when the seller knew full well that it wasn't. The shops that wouldn't do that would say they were sincere shops. Well, the Christian should be a sincere Christian, not a divided Christian, not one that presents one thing and yet is something else. We, we would have a term for that, right? We would, we would use the term a hypocrite, saying that the the, the presenting of one reality and then the pursuing of another reality, that, the, that is wrongful. Notice it's to be sincere, not simply in your actions, but all the way down into your bones. It's, he actually mentions in the heart, at, at the, really the center of why you do what you do, seeking to God that you would be a united man, a united woman in the way that you conducted yourself, regardless of what you actually end up doing for work. Whether it's a very mundane, menial task, or whether you're like a brain surgeon, which se- that seems, I don't know why that seems important, but it seems important, right? Yeah. <laughs> Brian's a fan of sincere, wholehearted brain surgeons. So, And everything in between falls under that category of work. Whether you work at McDonald's or for Elon Musk and everything in between, 
you are to do it as a whole Christian man or whole Christian woman, not in a divided way, not in a hypocritical way. And you might say, but everyone else around me is like that. You are part of the new creation. You live differently. And is it easy to be drawn into the temptations of living like those around you? It, it is, especially when it pays off. That's not who you are, Christian. You've been made new by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are part of the age that is breaking into the world. Stop living like old world kind of people. You're not. You're, you're, you, you just simply aren't. And then the last one that drives that, that command, fearing the Lord. Why would I obey in everything? Why would I obey not as a man or as an eye pleaser or as a, an eye servant or a man pleaser? There it is. Why would I do that? Well, I ultimately fear God above and above. Uh, everything else. It's not like a carnal fear or servile fear. I, I fear him in the way that John Brown would describe the fear of God. I love his smile more than all the other smiles combined. And so I work a certain kind of way. And I fear his frown more than all the other cumulative frowns in the world. And so I work a certain kind of way. It's actually the Christian's fear of God that drives the way they work. They're not separated from one another. They are dependent or causal to one another. And so don't be thinking of like the gospel in the early parts of Colossians and then work in the second, and I gotta do it. No, this one, the gospel that radically transforms you directly impacts these, marriage and family and work. All that you are is impacted by the fact that you're a new creature in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice in verse 23, he continues along the same lines as 22. In 22, the command is to obey. In verse 23, whatever you do or should do, he's kind of putting his arms around the scope of all that he's talking about. Work heartily. Now the, the word for work, there that, that's another command. You are commanded as a new creature in Christ to engage in vocation, to engage in calling, to engage in work, and we're to do it uh, heartily. The, the ESV adds heartily. It literally is uh, work from the soul. Is that a shallow kind of endeavor? That's not like a punch-in, punch-out kind of uh, lifestyle that, that actually is way bigger. And it means that work far from being a necessary evil is actually something that I engage in with really all that I am. It sounds a whole lot like Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you are going. Now, young folks, I don't want to paint with broad brushes, but I will. I didn't say I wasn't going to. I just said I don't like doing it, but I do it. You might be tempted at this age of your life to look at work as like this huge drag that gets in the way of all the other stuff you want to do. 
I'd encourage you, if, that, if that's your view, go talk to a God-fearing older man. Let's say north of, oh, that's dangerous. <laughs> You'll forgive me. North of 75. Yeah. <laughs> and ask him, what would you give to go back and to do the thing again that God made you to do and called you to do and have the body and the energy to do it again. I wager they'd tell you it's a missed thing. That there's something about the youthful joy and gift of work that we maybe didn't see when we were young but is clearer in the rearview mirror as the body just doesn't do what we used to be able to do with it. The energy isn't there, or the ability isn't there, or the eyesight isn't there. That season is closing or closed. If you're young and you have that season available to you, don't view such a good gift as a drag. View it as a portion from God. I think that's one of the main reasons why the Song of Songs, or why the Song of Songs, why Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon, puts this at, ver- at chapter 9 and says at the end that really humbling picture of old age. There'll come a time where you can't do it anymore. So if you're in that season where you can, do it with all that you are. With a sincere heart, with zeal and vigor, because the day will dawn when you can't. And rather than being in, in evil, seeing work with with new creation eyes as a gift. God only gave you so many years to do it. Don't waste them. Don't waste them. It's, it's humbling as I, I know this will sound ridiculous to those who are slightly elderly. I'm not pointing at Brian, I'm just pointing over here. I'm sneaking up on 40. I know, I know. <laughs> The funny thing is half the kids over there are like, that is old. <laughs> I'm, ha- I'm halfway to 80. <laughs> Some of you are way more than halfway. Stop laughing. So, <laughs> do you know how fast that went? And go ask a genuinely older person, how fast did it go? They'll tell you fast. Don't waste it. Please, young person, don't waste it. Don't waste it. If you're old like me, haha, <laughs> that was funny. Work where you are with the energies and gifts that God's given you. If you're elderly and you don't have what you used to have, don't waste your life pining over what was. Where are you today? And what work has God given you that you can do? Do it. With all your might. And you might say, my might's less than it used to be. I believe you. That doesn't get rid of the command. Do it. With whatever might God has given you. Don't waste it. Work is too good of a gift from God to be wasted. And then don't let it consume your life. Also engage in the rest that God gives. He gave you a Sabbath day every week that you would taste of rest. If you're like me and others, work can be something that you just love and can consume you. 
that good gift can become an idol. And good gifts make really bad gods. So to the lazy, don't waste the gift of, of work. Enjoy it and engage in it. <laughs> to those on the workaholic side of things, uh, it's not a god. Don't make it one. See it as a good gift that God has given to you to do that. Now, why would we engage in this? He gives you the motivation at the end of verse 24. You also work or do knowing something. Again, this knowledge drives you. Knowing that the real reward, far from being a paycheck, is actually that you'll receive an inheritance and a reward. That actually work coming ultimately from God is ultimately then rewarded by God uh, upon entering into his presence. It's part of the well, what's the word? Done. Good and faithful servant. If all I'm doing is working for a paycheck, I get it's part of it. But the Christian has much bigger, brighter eyes to see. I'm working because this is what God's given me to do. And I want to live a life that's well-pleasing to him. Not to earn his favor, but because I have his favor in Christ. So I'm just going to do the things that he made me to do. And I'll trust myself to him. This is a powerful stay against those who are not compensated well for their, for their efforts. Look to God and know that he'll care for you. This is also for those who want to put too much faith in the compensation. That's not the reward either. The one from God is. Do not make an idol of these things, brothers and sisters. Moving down and quickly because... <laughs> out of time. That's never stopped us before. Um, looking at verse 24 at the end. Some would look at this and would say that this is an indicative statement. And you're like, well, obviously, I don't know why they would say it. Well, it, it could be, actually. As though he were saying by statement of fact, hey, you happen to be serving the Lord. The other way, and, I, and this is the way that I would take it, is that it's actually in the same form as an imperative, as a command. It's as though he is like, Leaning forward and telling you directly, Christian, you are to serve the Lord. It's not a like, if you see someone vacuuming, you're like, hey, you're vacuuming. Like, that's just a statement of fact. It's actually a command. You, Christian, you serve God with the whole of your life. Whether it's with the zeal and strength of youth or the older days, or the middle days in between. You serve ultimately God, so serve him. And serve him with a whole heart. And work heartily for him. And serve him not to please people, but to please him. Not when your boss is watching, but because you know God is all, you, you live before his presence always. Live before his face and for his favor because you're part of the new creation. You are one of his own. And it doesn't really, I've had a ton of jobs in my life from being a security guard to working in a really gross butcher shop to being a custodian, and we won't go into that, and to being a pastor. All of those, you couldn't look at any one of them and be like, well, that, man, those custodian years, those were the good ones. Like, no, 
they were the work that God had for me in each of those seasons. So work heartily, even if the job is, uh, well, not the most savory. Looking at the second point, which is much shorter than the first point, answering to God, not to men. The first one would be working to God, not for men. The second would be answering to God, not to men. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly. Now, verse 25, actually, I would say, serves as a hinge between the two. The content of 25, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done. There's no partiality. Both is for the servant as well as the master. It actually is all-encompassing. So if it's the worker who's refusing to work with integrity, know this, God pays back for the wrongdoing. Maybe for the, for the worker who is being wronged, it's a comfort. Knowing this, that, that really wicked boss that you have, Entrust them to God. God hasn't lost sight of all the things that they've said or done to you. God hasn't lost sight of the times you've been passed over. God hasn't lost sight of the times you were wrongly punished by doing the job that they were supposed to do, but they made you do it because they didn't want to do it or whatever. Know this. God will set things right. That's actually not our job in this world or the next. God pays back the wrongdoer, and he doesn't show favoritism. Maybe the person that you were working with was shown favoritism and they climbed the ladder. That's not the way God is. That is both a guard and encouragement, as well as a warning for the bondservants, 22 through 24, as well as the masters in verse 1 of chapter 4. 25 works uh, as a heading over both. So masters are those who are in charge. Uh, They're held to a certain kind of standard. Now, I I mentioned this to one person person, or several, I guess, Um, I I conducted an experiment this week about this very topic. And everyone who came through the office, I asked them this question this week. I'm trying to figure out who's the boss around here. Is it me or Carolyn? Guess what everyone said without fail? See, you all know it. She denies it, but I'm like, Carolyn, you're called to treat me justly and fairly. I just said, I'm not the one who sends her email saying, I need sermon info now. She's the one who sends it to me. Anyway, it's, it's always good to know your place in life. <laughs> Knowing that Carolyn's my boss, I, I just adapt. So, masters, Carolyn, hope you're listening, treat your servants with justice and fairness. What a command. They're they're actually called on by God. The word for treat means to to make sure that this thing is brought about. So if you are in any position where people are under you, this is actually a weighty responsibility from God to you. You're to make sure justice and fairness or equity abound to that person. If you think that's an easy thing, it really isn't. To make sure that those under your employment are treated with justice and righteousness and not taken advantage of, not shortcut on their wages, not cut corners with how they're compensated and treated. That's actually not a small thing. And if you've had a boss that's done that, you know just how awful that is. 
Now, if you are elevated to that position in whatever industry or place you're in, know this, your duties are to be just and fair. And that's a weighty responsibility. We're not to be the kind of boss that rules in harshness. If, you have a, if you're a boss and you have a reputation for being a difficult, hard person, I would challenge you from God's word today. Are you really listening to verse 1? If you have a reputation as a Christian, just hard-nosed, who can't be pleased, I, I, I exhort you by God's word, wrestle with verse 1. Are you being fair? Are you being just? You're called to be like Christ. Those who were wicked said of him he was a harsh master, understanding him wrongly. You're not to be a harsh master. That's not the way Christ is to you. So don't be that to others. Don't be heavy-handed. Yes, you have to hold standards. That's part of justice and doing things rightly. But also don't engage in manipulating those around you. The world plays games. Christians ought not. The world either lavishes with falsehood of being flattering or by robbing of truth, by lying and slandering. The Christian ought to do neither of those things. We are truth-speaking people who deal even-handedly, not being too harsh and not being uh, manipulative on the other side of it. You might say, uh, by way of objection, This is just the way the world is. You don't know my industry. I don't deny that this is the way that the world is. My argument hasn't been about the world. My argument has been how Christians ought to conduct themselves. You might say, you don't get it. If I, as a boss, if I deal with it justly and fairness, I'm not going to make the margins that I usually make. I'm not going to make the profit that I usually make. I'm not going to climb the, I, I don't doubt you. That might well be the case. What I am telling you is this is what the word of God is saying to you. And we better listen to it. We better really listen to it. This too, the verb or the imperative for treat justly and fairly is governed, again by that part of the down at the bottom, knowing you have a master in heaven too. Do you want God to deal with Harshly on the day of days. No. Do you want God to deal? And again, we would be careful in how we would say it, but you want him to be fair in the sense of how he's offered himself in the gospel. You want that. Know that one day there'll be a review of either how you've served or how you've led. And both servant and master, employee and employer, both will give an account to God for how they conducted themselves. How they handled the gift that was work for the few fleeting years that they had it. Ultimately, we answer to the Lord. It's interesting that he uses the word for master throughout. Both to refer to human masters and then to remind us we actually have a Uh, an ultimate one in heaven. And you'll give an account to him on how we lived in this world, 
how we conducted ourselves in the workplace. The Christian, as part of that new creation, should go before their master with a clear conscience. Don't underestimate the value of a clear conscience. And don't allow past sin to rob future obedience. Don't say, well, I've been hard. I've been in this industry a long time. I've just been this way. Okay, that's no reason to continue to be that. That's that's just like, I have a lot to repent for. That's what that's saying. I have a lot of years to repent of, and I'm going to repent, and I will now, and change. But so often, whether it's you're uh, on the serving side or the leading side, we allow past patterns of sin to be excuses as to why we wouldn't live circumspectly clear, with a clear conscience before God. Don't allow the enemy to deceive you like that. Today is the day to follow Christ with a clear conscience. Today is the day to say whether it's, it's a thankless jobs or a thankless job, there we go, I can't think of just the more mundane jobs than than what moms faithfully carry out every day. God sees that, moms. I hate it when people ask my wife, like, hey, are you, like, do you work or are you a mom? Like, oh, yeah, I don't work at all. I'm just a mom. Like, moms don't punch out at the end of the day. They're always on the clock. They don't get overtime or vacations usually. I mean, there's this, there's this serving God faithfully there in the quiet ways. There's the big ways, or the, at least the world would see them, wherever God has you. Whether it's serving the little ones that run around the house as their barbarians, or if it's working in big careers. Both of those are gifts from God. Use them well for his glory. Be able to say at the end of a day when you are tired, I ate and drank today for God's glory. Not for mine and not for other men's, but for God's. Let's pray. Father, please give us wisdom to know how to live in this confusing and difficult and fallen world. Please cause us to work for you to not be man-pleasers, but to be pleasing to you. To not be fearers of men, but to be fearers of you. God, help us to use the days that you give us for your glory. Cause us to not be so microscopically focused on the small ins and outs of the daily life that we lose sight of the big picture. That we work for you. And we answer to you. And so, God, we entrust ourselves to you, knowing that you, praise your name, are not partial and you are not unjust. And so we can trust you with our lives. We pray that we would do so more fully. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.